Welcome to the audio podcast, the weekly sermon of the First Presbyterian Church of Brooklyn. We continue our multi-access worship both online in our recently renovated sanctuary. Sunday morning service is in person at 11 a.m. and we are live on firstchurchbrooklyn.org as well as the church Facebook page at facebook.com slash firstchurchbrooklyn. All one word, no spaces. Now, this week's message. I'm so honored to be asked to preach today in the year of this church's bicentennial. 200 years is a tremendous testimony to the faithfulness of God. For those of you who don't know me, I served here from 2004 to 2010. I began as a seminary intern when I was at Union Theological Seminary in Morningside Heights. I was ordained as your associate pastor when Dr. Paul Smith was retiring after 20 plus years of transforming and pastoring this congregation into the intentionally multicultural church it still is. And I was called as your minister, but it is you who ministered to me, showing me the true resilience of a life that is not afraid to let God in. My heart warms when I look out into these pews, but it is my spirit that awakens to the timeless nature of love when, in the empty seats, I see the faces of those we've lost over the last 12 years since I've been here. I share your sorrow this week with the sudden passing of Elder Edna Asknes. Edna was a patient and kind mentor to me She was the chair of adult education when I started and the clerk of session by the time I left. So we worked closely together. What I noticed fairly quickly is that she was grounded in her own faith in a way that allowed her to serve the God she knew while remaining open to others exploring faith in their own way. And you guys know that a lot of us explore faith in our own way, right? Maybe it was her nursing training, but I think she also had the spiritual gifts of a healer that made her wise to the world of suffering, but never jaded. When I faced a life-threatening pregnancy and later faced the task of taking home an infant that required ventilator support and at-home nursing care, Edna, who was training visiting nurses at the time, was a sober and supportive resource who counseled me without judgment about the complexities of what caregiving would look like. In many ways, Edna carried the mantle of the great women of the Bible, who know well the long road of suffering, but never fail to take the next best step in faith that God's love will hold us up. My time at First Brooklyn taught me about the power of love in a church, but it is not always easy. Like so many churches in moderate to liberal denominations, we were in a time of constant transition and anxiety about the future of a tradition that struggles to define itself and make itself relevant in a polarized world. I served under three senior pastors, if you don't even include the time I actually was head of staff myself and served under myself, which might have been the hardest boss. I served under Dr. Paul Smith, Reverend Carrie Jackson, and Reverend Stephen Phelps, who I believe all of them will preach for you in the next coming weeks. I saw search committees try and fail, and throughout that time and since, I have prayed 
for this congregation as it weathered the waves of rotating leadership. But I've always had an abiding faith that God has got you. Not out of some predestined belief, like God has a plan. That's not really how I express my faith. But because I know that throughout, you all are faithful to your God and faithful to each other. You love each other. You got each other. I know this because when it was most critical for me, you held me and my family when we needed it most. As individuals in a congregation, y'all, yes, I I live in Atlanta now, so I say (laughs) y'all. Y'all love each other when it matters most. And this love, this love, not a charismatic preacher or the most pastoral minister there is, is what sustains a congregation for 200 years. People come to church to love and be loved. That's all we can hope for in a life full of uncertainty and a world full of conflict. So yes, the road was not always clear, but God has been present with us throughout, helping us make a way through. Now last night I got a text from Marcia Smith, who served as clerk of session for what felt like, to me, most of your 200 years. (laughs) And she encouraged me in a way that only Marcia can. She said, Beth, I'm so glad you'll be at church. Don't preach too long. (laughs) So friends, if you are counting, or if Marsha's watching on the live stream, I just need to say that introduction didn't count. And my sermon starts now. All right. I'm just making sure that old-timey looking clock actually works. And I think it does, so we'll, we'll get into it. Today's scripture tells the story of a woman who sees God and lives. But the God she sees is a mystery. The, this God does not act according to her hopes or our hopes. Hagar is the first female theologian. She is the first person in the Bible, male or female or non-binary, to say and to name God. Elroy, meaning the one who sees. If you pay attention to the verbs in the story, they summarize their encounter. God sees Hagar and sees Hagar's abuse and suffering under Abraham and Sarah. And Hagar meets God's messenger and listens to God's word for her. And God tells Hagar to return to her suffering and then offers her A blessing, but it it feels like an ambivalent blessing. And then Hagar names God. The translation we read this morning comes from the womanist theologian and scholar of the Hebrew Bible, Reverend Dr. Will Gaffney, who a year ago published a series of Sunday readings emphasizes the role of women and female imagery in the Bible. The texts she includes are overlooked in the preaching of most churches. For me, one of the most valuable resources in Gaffney's Women's Bible Lectionary, which I recommend you get, is her index in the back of non-male names for God that are translations of the Hebrew 
or also faithful liturgical tools. Some of them are the one or she who speaks life, the rock who birthed us, the one or she who is majesty, she who is peace, wisdom of the ages. You can see this in today's translation. When Gaffney renders alternate names for Lord, in all your other translations, it will just say Lord there. Like Hagar, who was the first woman to give God a name, Gaffney translates the divine names out of her own encounter with the presence and word of God. The one who sees, it starts out. The one who sees knows where to find Hagar at the spring and knows her history without her ever having to share it. The inscrutable God gives Hagar counterintuitive advice to return to rather than flee abuse without an explanation. The wellspring of life promises a multitude of descendants. These kinds of blessings are rare. God only gives them to the patriarchs. And the living God speaks to Hagar, but seeds the final word to her. Hagar is the last to speak. I find the names here to be powerful and practical and faithful to real lived experience. They seem more faithful to me than the much more popular descriptor of Almighty, heralding God's omnipotence. Which, by the way, did you know that Almighty never even appears in the Bible? It is a translation of El Shaddai, which is a Hebrew feminine noun, meaning God of the mountains, quite literally the breasted one. El Shaddai might better be described as the great nurturer or the all-sufficient. So can we trust these new titles for God when we haven't grown up hearing them? Can you and I trust a God that does not insist on being all-powerful, but is compromised by God's own love for human beings? His own love for all of them. Abraham, Sarah, Hagar, Ishmael, Isaac, and the generations that follow. And it must be so hard to love all of them when they are so terrible sometimes to each other. Let's cut to the chase. Do we trust Hagar and Dr. Gaffney's accounts of God? Would we allow ourselves to trust the testimony of women about the nature and the name of God? Last week, an anti-abortion protester stood outside my church in Atlanta with a few graphic posters and a bullhorn. He had been incited by a large banner that we had made an Eastertide when the Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe v. Wade was leaked. Now, we had a double meaning to this banner. The lectionary readings of Easter were about the women who first encountered the resurrected Christ, and yet no one believed them. The banner just said, trust women. And we put it up for all of Easter, and then it just seemed like we needed to keep it up. It seemed like people still needed to hear that. And I, I pray, but I'm afraid that they'll still need to hear that for the next 50 years. The message we put on our banner very simply was the gospel message of Easter. And like today's story where God reveals God's self to a woman, Christ's glory was revealed to women first. 
So as I got out of the car, the man's voice boomed, don't enter this church. It's a fake church. It tells you to trust women when you should trust God. As if those things are mutually exclusive. Do we not learn faith by trusting Jesus who trusted God? Do we not learn faith through our fellow church members and elders who themselves trust God? Would we have understood that the tomb was empty on Easter and Christ is risen if not for the trustworthy testimony of the women who were the first to arrive and the first to proclaim the good news? Now, Christianity has a complicated relationship with women of faith. A flip through Dr. Gaffney's lectionary puts it all on display. Women's stories have offered a counter-narrative to divine imperialistic power for ages. Rachel questions the rationale favoring the firstborn and assists her younger son in acquiring a blessing. Later, after a massacre in Rama, Rachel weeps for her descendants and refuses to be consoled by the idea that their slaughter is God's will. Miriam, the sister of Moses, plays her tambourine outside the camp, praising that God is good and God is present with those on the margins. And then there is Tamar, who demonstrated more honor in the wake of her own trauma than her brothers who set out to defend her. There's the unnamed mother who saved her child from Solomon's sword. And there's Zilpah, who protects the corpses of her sons from decay to protest their lynching under King David's reign. Even the women who are blessed speak out for the forgotten. Hannah goes to the temple to dedicate her son Samuel and sings, God raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from heaps of waste. Centuries later, a young girl named Mary, carrying the shame of illegitimate pregnancy, echoes Hannah's song in her own Magnificat, proclaiming God lifts up the lowly and remembers us in mercy. And Mary's son, Jesus, often didn't admit when he was wrong or have a change of perspective, except when he meets a woman at a well, under a table, hanging onto his cloak, or anointing his feet. Now, women are not paragons of morality. The means and motives of all the characters in the Bible are questionable, like ours. But what you see over and over is that when women are seen and heard, the divine plan shifts. Maybe that is what is so scary to the protester when he said trusting women is not trusting God. For what if God's will was not a perfect, predetermined absolute, but rather responsively determined through engagement and with the creation that God loves? The testimony of women says that the will of God is more supple and interactive than our religious doctrines describe. Hagar's story illustrates this responsive, interactive, and engaged God. Hagar is fleeing horrendous abuse. God sees her, but does not offer Hagar salvation? I still don't understand that. And yet, God offers survival for the sake of her children. And that name that Hagar gives to God reflects the primacy 
of divine sight, not divine salvation. The God Hagar meets is in process, and so are the circumstances of her life and her son's life. One might even say that her son's life is God's creative protest to the supremacist attitudes of that time. Womanist theologian and Presbyterian Dolores Williams drew a direct parallel between Hagar and the experience of African-American women. Hagar's story, Williams said, illuminates the intersectionality of oppression and identity of being black and female in our country. Her abuse by Abraham and Sarah mirrors the abuse perpetuated by white men and white women on black women and their children. Many black women, Williams writes, have testimony, have testified that God helped them make a way out of no way. So the gospel according to Hagar and the black women who followed her, as Williams tells it, is one of present survival, not future salvation. At least not yet. Doesn't Hagar's experience and testimony shed light on our current debate about women's bodies and our moral authority to make decisions for our families? Doesn't God see us as we women are struggling for our own survival and the survival and flourishing of our future children? Or will those who oppress and seek to control and condemn women to distrust us, especially black and brown women, have the last word? Friends, I know you probably know this, but the protester outside my church would not hear it. He refused to talk, and he refused even to pray with us when we asked him, extending our hand in friendship. But the truth about abortions is that women have them when we and those we parent are struggling to survive. 75% of women who follow through with abortions are living in poverty and already have a child or two. Most have experienced a recent traumatic event like domestic abuse or job loss. And many don't have health insurance or access to the most reliable forms of birth control. Yes, most unplanned pregnancies happen because birth control is unreliable or fails. Many are also women of color who carry the highest risk of maternal and fetal death in our country. These are Hagar's daughters, but God sees. And I want to just make a plug for our denomination, because when I was here, y'all used to say, we're the first not-so-Presbyterian church of Brooklyn. (laughs) But the Presbyterian church, along with the Unitarians, are really leading on this speaking out on reproductive justice. And our General Assembly just passed a task force report on the status of black women and girls and some resolutions on reproductive justice. And even before Roe v. Wade, the General Assembly gave funds to help women in low-access states get to high-access states. And the church that I serve now was one of those places that helped women. And they sent them to New York. So maybe those of you in New York might be a part of that, too. We get stuck in our country in thinking about abortion because we are stuck between two absolutes, 
Process theologian Catherine Keller describes these opposites as the resolute and the dissolute. There is either religious fundamentalism or secular materialism. There's either moral certainty or secular relativism. God is either the only truth or there is no truth. Life is either sacred or just arbitrary existence. I think we're in between there as people of faith in this church and in the denominations that I serve in. As a process in a way that resonates with our whole Christian tradition, Keller's sort of existing in the desert alone without hope. She calls truth a way, not an end point. Those who suffer, she writes, um, close truth of the creation. The future is open, lovingly and promisingly. The way is not laid out in advance. Creation is itself in process. Our own way forward has not yet been chartered. There may be no trail before us at all. And sometimes one can only move forward in faith. That is, in courage and in confidence, not in a delusional certainty. That, my friends, is the faith of Hagar. It is the faith of women. And it is a faith in a God of many names, one of which surely is the God who sees. I hope this is good news to you. It is good news to me. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's message. We trust you were fed as well as challenged by the content. This audio archive supplements a video library of the entire service. The video, along with music from our internationally recognized gospel choir, is available on firstchurchbrooklyn.org. We provide multi-access worship options both in person and online Sunday morning at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. We are live in the sanctuary, as well as firstchurchbrooklyn.org and the church Facebook page at facebook.com firstchurchbrooklyn. All one word, no spaces. Visit firstchurchbrooklyn.org for more information on both online and in-person worship. Remember that now, as always, you are loved.